Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. We've taken a little break. It's the summertime, vacations and traveling. But we've got a special guest for you today on the Project Purple Podcast. We've got coming all the way from Colorado, David Tile. Thank you for joining us on the Project Purple Podcast, David. Uh, thanks for having me, Dino. It's a pleasure. Full disclosure for our audience listening, wherever you may be. Um, I always say full disclosure because I love sharing this, the ways that I connect with this community, this pancreatic cancer community. Dave, you're a pancreatic cancer survivor. And as before we hit record here, you and I were talking, you asked like how I found you. And I said, well, it's the power of uh, the internet and social media. One of our our friends, they've been on the Project Purple podcast, the, uh, the Charlotte Pancreatic Cancer Alliance folks, a couple months back, uh, put out a story that uh, was local to them and their market. You and uh, your your kids there graduated from Duke, and uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, I was able to track you down um, and and connect via social media, I should say, and uh, that's what brings you here today. So it just. I love when those things happen because those are golden nuggets, uh, especially in the world that we're living in today. Um, it's just awesome to to expand the community, to connect with people, and to share stories of inspiration and, and raise awareness for this thing called pancreatic cancer. So with that, Dave, I'm going to hand the mic, as we say, over to you to share your background, um, how you got to us today in terms of uh, your journey with pancreatic cancer. And and before I do that, I always preface this by saying, you know, you can go as far back or stay as high level as you want. Uh, as you know, I, I told you before we hit record, I am taking notes, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. And with that, the mic is yours. Thanks, Dino, and I'm happy you found me. I don't have a large presence on social media, so um, it's pretty unique for someone to connect with me through that. But I, I believe maybe my children posted some things or some friends did. In any case, um, as you say, my, my kids and I just graduated from a program at Duke uh, University Medical uh, School. But our story really started uh, with pancreatic cancer, started back in 2018. and my kids and I um, and my wife, of course, we're all very close family. My, both my uh, son and daughter live in Colorado. Um, my uh, daughter just graduated from University of Washington, Seattle in uh, last year. So we were all set to take a major 100-mile trek in Pakistan uh, in August of 2018, I had arranged to have the month off from work and I'm an anesthesiologist. My daughter uh, was on summer break. My son had arranged with a job he was in, which was a startup, uh, to be off. And so we were joining uh, some other friends and a very well-known mountain climber to go to a remote mountain range in Pakistan. Uh, It's in the Karakoram Mountains, which is where K2 is, but it was much farther west in a um, mountain range called the Latok Group. And I don't need to go into the details of why we were going there other than it is a very kind of high level um, mountaineering area. And I moved to Colorado years ago to climb. I am a climber and my friends going with us were climbers. My kids are not, 
but we were just going on a trek and we weren't planning on doing any major climbing. Nevertheless, in preparation for that, in July of 2018, my daughter and I were hiking a 14er in Colorado called Beerstadt, Mount Beerstadt. And as we got toward the summit, I just didn't feel like I had the energy that I usually have when I'm climbing mountains. Um, and I have I had had uh, some pneumonia back in 2014, and I said to my daughter Jackie, you know, before we go on our trip, and this is literally a week before we're set to fly out to Pakistan, uh, I said, I'm going to get a CAT scan of my chest to make sure my pneumonias have cleared up. And so I, we were set to leave on Friday, and I got the CT scan of my chest on Monday. And my radiology friend called me, and he, he's the head of the radiology department, Craig. And he says, well, your, your lungs look pretty good, but you've got a dilated pancreatic duct. He goes, I think you need an abdominal CT scan. So he goes, I don't know if you want to get that before you go to Pakistan or after you come back. And I said, well, I don't want to think about this for a month. So I'll get it tomorrow. And so I got that on Tuesday. And as I read the, as I sat with the radiologist and we read the CT scan, the radiologist goes, oh, you got a pancreatic tumor. And I think this is cancer by the way it looks. So I knew right then and there we weren't going on the trek. I caught my son just before he walked into the travel clinic to get his last vaccine. And I said, we're not going. Um, and I arranged with a gastroenterologist to get a biopsy, which I got on the Thursday before the Friday we were set to leave for Pakistan. Um, I, I got biopsied and sure enough, it was adenocarcinoma, uh, the, the, you know, the deadly form of uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, initially, the, the cancer was stage one. So it was a tumor just under two centimeters. It was kind of in the middle of the pancreas. Didn't look like I had any spread outside of the pancreas. And it looked like it was going to be resectable probably by a Whipple surgery, which I know, Dina, you're, you're familiar with. Um, and originally, the gastroenterologist said, oh, well, they'll probably do a Whipple next week. So I went to a local surgeon who did pancreatic surgery. And my daughter and I and my wife all went and met with them. And he described the cancer, showed us what it looked like on the CT scan. And my daughter goes, well, what's the prognosis if we do a Whipple here? And he goes, oh, well, probably 5% survival um, in a year. And um, I looked at my wife and I go, hmm, that doesn't sound right. And so we walked out of there and I said, I, I know I have a better prognosis than that. Um, but I don't know what it is. I mean, it's never good to have pancreatic cancer, but I said, I, I owe it to myself to check out the University of Colorado because uh, I knew they had a good uh, cancer program. So I immediately connected with them that Friday. And this is like, I just got my diagnosis the day before, but that Friday I, I set up an appointment for the following week. And on the following Tuesday, I met with their whole cancer team and they had reviewed my studies and they, uh, the surgeon, Richard Schulich, who heads the program, the oncologist and the radiation oncologist all came in and they said, 
well, you have stage one cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, and it is probably resectable, probably by a Whipple, but it's marginally resectable because it does hit up against a vein in the uh, mesentery. So the, the mesenteric vein. And the, they said the current protocol is not to go straight to surgery, but to do chemotherapy first. And that would be usually eight rounds of chemotherapy. And then radiation therapy, very high dose directed radiation therapy, five treatments of that, wait a month for the inflammation to go down, and then do the Whipple surgery, and then follow up the Whipple surgery a month or two later with four more rounds of chemotherapy. And that's what I did. Um, so I went to chemotherapy for eight rounds. I did very well with the chemotherapy. Um, and I will say right now, my wife uh, sat with me on every session. Uh, we would go watch movies throughout the, the, the chemotherapy was pretty rough. I didn't get a lot of nausea or vomiting, but you would go in on a Monday, you'd uh, receive medication all day long, and then go home with a pump that would give you the fourth drug. It's, it's four drugs total. And the fourth drug would run in over 48 hours, basically. And then you come back to the cancer center two days later, and they hit you with a drug called Nulasta, which um, stimulates your bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And then that's really what kicked my butt. Uh, I get the Nulasta on Wednesday afternoon. And on Thursday, I could barely get out of bed. So I, I usually crawl out of bed, walk my dog, crawl back into bed. That was my routine. And that basically was this usual routine for eight rounds. Um, I did the followed that up with the um, radiation. And I apparently was very fortunate. They said, Many people don't get through all the eight rounds because of side effects or white blood counts or whatever it was, but I tolerated it very well. And then I um, did the radiation. And then ultimately in February of 2019, I had the Whipple surgery. And that was, that was pretty hard. Um, I lost about between 10 and 15 pounds. I never lost weight with chemo but I lost between 10 and 15 pounds with the Whipple and I um, have never gained that back. So I'm down uh, way below any uh, weight I've had for since I was in junior high school, probably. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I am now uh, still cancer-free three years after my diagnosis or over three years after my diagnosis. So um, I still get... Um, Surveillance uh, CT scans, chest, abdomen, and pelvic uh, CT scans. My last one was in May of this year. My next one will be in uh, December, and they've all been negative. And when you know, my pneumonias are pretty much gone too, so it's all good. It's wild. So I'm going to back up. Prior to, in hindsight, it's always 2020. Prior to that July 2018 hike with your daughter, mm -hmm. is there was there ever a time that things just didn't feel right? No, and and ironically, as another part of my medical history, 
was that in February of 2017, I was out at the Cleveland Clinic because I had to get a heart valve repair. So I had open heart surgery in February 2017. And as part of that workup, I had a a CT scan of my abdomen and chest because they have to assess your aorta. And Mm -hmm. and in in retrospect, there may be a tiny little, um, you might be able to find a tiny little tumor in the pancreas of the 2017 um, CT scan, but you would really have to look hard. Um, have you gone so back I, and tried to look at that? We did. We did look at, I had my radiologist look at, it and maybe, you know, they know where, it, because they can compare it to where they found Correct, the tumor. Yeah. And they go, yeah, there's an abnormality there, but you know, that apparently my tumor was pretty slow growing. And in fact, it, my radiologist friend, Craig, um, he saved my life obviously. And he made an unbelievable call on the CT, on the chest CT scan Apparently, there was only one slice below my diaphragm where the pancreas even showed. And he just did a very thorough reading of my CT scan because I really got that chest CT to look at my lungs. Yeah. And had he been just looking at the lungs, he wouldn't have seen it. But being a thorough radiologist, he saw the dilated pancreatic duct. And another friend of mine, a radiologist, she, she said, I don't know if I would have seen it. Um, so. You know, I I praise Craig all the time. He's the uh, head of the department at my hospital where I work. And, you know, he's just a great radiologist. And, you know, we're really close friends. I get chills just hearing you tell that story, though. I mean, like, you know, how many people, you know, go through that process, though, you know? And, and the chills and the fact that, you know, in this, I'm not going to try to debate this, but, you know, we've had a lot of, Benchwork scientists, oncologists, uh, surgeons, um, you know, on this this podcast, and you know, there's been some people that have said, well, you know, the tumors, you know, don't present themselves for you know up to sometimes ten years, you know, like the slow growing, and to know that, like, you did, you know, all the same CT scans in 17 of February, and yeah, hindsight naturally being 2020. But like nothing really stuck out. And then you fast forward to July and, you know, Craig's able to to identify that from that first one. And then, you know, then the next one, you know, clearly show it. That's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. I was really lucky. Um, I think what I learned in, and I wouldn't recommend that everybody try to go out and get a CT scan. Of course. Yeah. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to advocate that, but. Right. Um, but as as you probably, I'm sure you know, uh, the people that do survive pancreatic cancer are the ones that get discovered early, and it's usually serendipitous finding. Maybe they had a auto accident, they get a CT scan of their abdomen to make sure they don't have an injury, and somebody sees the, a pancreatic tumor. Um, I think that you know I was really fortunate, uh, but it also shows the value of being a self advocate, whether you're a doctor or not you can still advocate for yourself and say, first off, my first lesson here was to even get the CT scan. Uh, The second one was when I didn't get an answer that I thought made sense from the first surgeon, I went to another program Mm -hmm. and the program at university of Colorado, I can't say enough about they, you know, the surgeon Richard Schulich is from Johns Hopkins. He trained there. He's a specialist in pancreatic. He's done thousands of Whipple surgeries, which is the kind of surgeon you want. 
the radiation oncologist, she had uh, been from MD Anderson where she had done pancreatic cancer. Um, I think she had actually been there when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was diagnosed. Um, and then the oncologist there was outstanding. I didn't actually receive my chemo from University of Colorado. I went to a Rocky Mountain Cancer Center just because it's closer to the hospital I work at. <clears throat> it's more convenient. Mm -hmm. And the chemotherapy protocol is the same. So it didn't really matter. And so um, I had, I've had great care. Um, I've had great care. I've also had, I had to self-advocate a bit. I had a fantastic nurse navigator from the University of Colorado, and she took great care of me. Anytime I needed a follow-up or any kind of study, I'd call her and she'd help me through it. And then, of course, I can't say enough about my wife and kids. But I, and my wife really was really hard on her, has been, and she's just stuck with me. Um, and, I, you know, anybody's gone through this, you, you don't have a lot of sunny days. You feel lousy a lot of the time. Uh, I did <clears throat> I did continue to work in between um, weeks of chemo. Uh, and part of that was um, I wanted to stay active and I wanted to stay engaged. And I didn't want anybody to question whether I was still clinically competent. I just, I figured, I said to my wife, Patty, if I just keep showing up, taking care of patients, no one's going to say at the end, oh, you know, has cancer changed him? You know, should he be taking care of patients? And I said, I'm just going to keep, you know, showing up and, and showing them that I, that I can still do it. So uh, I did take two months off after the surgery. That's the surgeon insisted on that. Um, but I did, I did try to keep, keep going. It wasn't always easy, but I did it. It's inspiring. I get a question that just came up. Now you said you moved to Colorado to, to climb. And that's what you've been doing for the time you've been there. So you're, would you say you're an experienced climber? I'm a, I'm a very experienced climber. I'm not a world-class climber. Okay. Um, you know, when you come to Colorado, you run into people who, uh, you know, I, I, I once ran into a guy who did the first, just by happenstance, I'm in a shoe store with a guy and, and the owner goes, you know who that was? That was the guy who put the first American winter ascent of the Iger up. Um, you know, in Colorado, whether you're in Boulder or my town of Evergreen, you run across Olympic athletes mm -hmm. all the time. This is where people come to train. Um, American Alpine Club is located in Golden, Colorado. Yep. There's world-class climbers everywhere. And there's a joke that if you climb Everest, you don't even get to be part of the conversation unless you did a new route without oxygen, <laughs> without a guide. So, you know, it's a different league here in climbing. Oh, yeah. And, and so the reason I, I asked that question, so going back to when you realize, and, and so I don't know how much of our audience has been to Colorado. I know I, we were talking before we hit record. I, I was out there many times and I learned the first time. The first time I went out, I had one bear and it hit me like, a case of bear because right. elevation, I wasn't hydrating. And then I think the next day, like we tried to go do something like, you know, exercise wise. And I just hit a wall. Right. So not only do you, you need that stamina, but then people don't realize how the elevation, you know, hits you like a ton of bricks. So experienced climber, you're doing these climbs. 
you know, 14,000 feet is no joke. I mean, here in Connecticut, you know, New England, that's, that's pretty big. Uh, we don't, we don't have a lot of those around here. Um, you got to drive quite a bit to get to that. So what was that feeling like? Just so our audience listening at home, uh, maybe you can share just what, what was it that just didn't feel right on that climb that you knew like, Hey, something was off. Right. You know, and, and I'm not even sure this was due to my pancreatic cancer. I, I really attribute it more to my residual pneumonias, but I was hiking, uh, once you get above 30, uh, 13,000 feet, I was feeling more winded. I, I was having a little trouble keeping pace with my uh, daughter and her friend huh. who were charging up the hill. Now, of course, they're 40 years younger um, and they have, you know, a, <laughs> they haven't had heart surgery or pneumonia like yeah. I'd had. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm going, well, I just don't feel as I I've climbed this same peak before and I bounded up this a lot better. Now I'm not a fast acclimatizer, which is one reason that I didn't go on to become a Himalayan climber. I, as it turned out, uh, I don't acclimatize all that well. So I, while I'm experienced, uh, overall mountaineer, rock climber, ice climber. I am not a great high altitude climber. I've successfully um, summited Aconcagua, which is 22,300. Um, well, actually, it's 228. De uh, Denali twice, Kilimanjaro. But each time it's been a struggle <laughs> for me on summit day. Uh, it's always, it's always challenging. It's fairly painful, but, uh, I did succeed there, but nevertheless, I hadn't, I didn't have a big career ahead of me as a Himalayan climber. <laughs> so you knew your strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> I, I, I'm very aware. <laughs> you have to be realistic with yourself. Uh, it, it, it hurts, but I, I've succeeded through, um, a lot of grit, uh, at, in it. mountains. I love it. I love it. So other question that I wrote down here, you mentioned the, the heart workup, but prior to 17, no major medical issues, no, is there a family history within your family, siblings, parents of cancer? Not, a, uh, no, not really, not of cancer. Um, ironically, my, uh, an 80 year old uncle, uh, several years ago died of metastatic pancreatic cancer. Uh, but he was discovered to have it in his neck, in his mm. cervical spine. And um, we spread his ashes in the uh, um, bay down by out Clearwater uh, in Florida. But my Uncle Mike, who I was really close to. But I I did get genetically tested. I was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, so did my uh, wife. <laughs> uh, not because I had cancer, but she, her mom had had cancer. Uh, but anyway, I, neither I or my kids or my wife have any, uh, of the known markers for uh, a propensity for cancer. So we felt fortunate about that. So it's just one of those mutations that I happen to have. And we just haven't identified yet as we, as we try to, exactly. you know, figure out more about this disease question for you here. And I know you mentioned it early on, you know, being an anesthesiologist, and then, you know, having relationships here and, and knowing, you know, Craig and, and some of the other folks here on this journey. 
how has that got to be mentally? Because this is you're in this business of medicine. So mm-hmm. I guess my first question is, did you see that as kind of a barrier mentally because you know what you know? I think I think that's a important question. Um, on the one hand, I came to acceptance very quickly. As soon as I saw the tumor in the pancreas on the CT scan, you know, hot off the press, I just went into a clinical mode and said, "Okay, this is what we got to do now." Um, and it allowed me to accept it because. You know, you sometimes you, people will go through, why is this me? Why me? Mm-hmm. And I, because I've seen so many patients get diseases that they don't deserve, you know, I, I say, why not me? As opposed to anybody else. Um, nobody deserves to get pancreatic cancer or uh, any kind of cancer, right? Or, or any of these terrible illnesses that they get or COVID, really. Um, we don't wish upon a disease, a disease upon anybody. And so you go, okay, this is what I got. And everybody's going to get something sometime. And this was my thing to deal with. And, and the other thing to realize that you don't just necessarily get one thing. You may get something else too. And we all know people who got one thing and then another. And you go, why did they get all this? They don't deserve any of that. And so uh, from a... From being a doctor, I was able to say, okay, uh, I I may not deserve it, but I have it and I'm going to move forward on it. It also allowed me to navigate better. Um, I knew what to expect. So it, doctors aren't always the worst patients. Um, I was, I'm actually a very good patient, um, but I also advocate for myself, as I've said, and um for instance, you know, when I went in to get an upper endoscopy, you walk, you go into the university, they've got to do an ultrasound uh, endoscopy, and the nurse walks in and says, here, take off all your clothes and put on this gown. And I said, well, I'll take off my shirt and everything, but I'm not taking off my underwear. <laughs> and she goes, yo, you have to. I go, no, you're not doing a colonoscopy. <laughs> yeah. You're doing an upper endoscopy. And there's just no reason I stay here without my underwear on. You know, and I didn't want to be obstinate about it, but yeah. I'm like, you don't need it. <laughs> you know, and, and I, what it did for me there was make me a better doctor. Um, because you go really every little detail matters and it, it is almost dehumanizing when they go here, take off all your clothes and put this gown on this little flimsy gown and mm-hmm. sit here naked. And, and it really, we, it really made me concentrate in the, especially since I'm an anesthesiologist in the perioperative period on the patient experience, uh, every detail, whether you're putting in the IV or you're flushing the IV. I don't know if you go to a cancer center, what happens is they always flush your chemotherapy port and you, I can taste the salt in the saline and it makes me nauseated because if, even if it's not nauseating this first time, you associate it with chemotherapy. So every time you go in there, now you taste the salt, you know what's coming. And so a lot of the cancer patients, me included, would grab a, uh, hard candy to suck on so you didn't have to taste it. And I'd tell the nurse, flush it a little slower, please, because I don't want that rush of saline, you know, that I have to taste. But every little detail, it sounds minor, but these little tiny minor details, just to acknowledge the humanity of the patient is really important. 
Yeah, it's it's very powerful, David, because you know, I, I think that's the one thing, you know, all cancers suck. Um this one I'm biased. I, I tend to say that it's it's worse than others. And I think that's the one thing you, you talk about humanity and and you know, I just know from my own personal experience, that was a very uh, difficult thing for my dad going through it, you know, in terms of uh, the the human aspect of it and, you know, the struggles that cancer patients, in particular pancreatic cancer patients, deal with. Um, and I think your story about that endoscopy is just so on point, right? Like you, you're, you're not doing anything below, you're, you're just going up top. So, you know, you don't need to... Uh, to derobe. Not everyone's built like David Beckham or Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Like and and sitting right. in those and and naturally the the hospital gowns aren't really that flattering to begin with. So uh so yeah, it's it's it, it's it's I joke there of course, but like yeah, it's it's so powerful what you just said from the human aspect of it. So do you think you you said something earlier when you when you had that first initial consultation with the first group of uh, surgeons, did your doctor sense kick in there to say like, hey, wait a minute, like, you know, I need more information. Um, you know, you, did that help you in that scenario then to get you to Colorado with the, the group that, you know, these guys that do this and, you know, they built a great program there in Colorado. It's, it's one of the top programs in the country. So do, do you think being a doctor helped you in that sense? I think so. Uh, although I think you could have gotten to the same um, decision just by being uh, aware and a good self-advocate. But the doctor and, and the surgeon is highly regarded. I've known him a while. Um, but his demeanor didn't really match the prognosis that he gave me. He came in smiling. He seemed upbeat. And I think that's just his general demeanor. But I, I don't know how you can smile and say you have a 5% chance of getting through this. Um, that's just, there was a disconnect on that. And I just thought, I'm, I'm just not accepting of this. Now, you know, I'm three years out. No one predicts the future. Who knows uh, what will ultimately happen. But uh, with, the, with each day that I live and I'm cancer-free, my prognosis improves. Um, and I think that Richard Schulich out at the university was very upbeat about my, about my uh, chance of success. Um, I will say something about fighting cancer and beating cancer. This is an important uh, distinction. And I'm not, I don't pretend to be an expert. I'm an expert patient in this, but I'm not an expert in pancreatic cancer or in mindfulness, but uh, there's a, another doctor that I'm good friends with. He's out of Mayo Clinic, and his name is Amit Sood, S-O-O-D. He's an MD, and he is a um, kind of a mindfulness, wellness, resiliency guru, and now he goes around the country uh, speaking about stress management, resiliency, and, and wellness, and I've already become affiliated with him even before this. And I, we called him as a family and he said, Dave, don't, um, don't fight your cancer. Let your doctors fight your cancer. If you fight cancer internally, you create a milieu that increases the inflammation 
and promotes cancer. Your job is to try to fill your days with positive positivity and meaning and let your doctors fight the cancer for you. And so I think I, I didn't subsequently then go research everything there is to know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess, Dino, that you know more about pancreatic cancer than I do because I, I didn't want to read every article about it because it, it puts you in dark places because most people don't live you know, who have, who get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, as we know, because they have stage four or advanced pancreatic cancer. And so to go read about it isn't really productive and doesn't put you in a good mind space. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to spend my time learning how to be positive and find meaning in my life. Super powerful. And I think what you just said, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth though, is you got to have uh, trust and faith in the team you work with. And I think that's something that I think a lot of patients probably struggle with a lot of times, but don't have the courage. I would say courage because that, that that's probably not the proper term, but maybe they don't know. And, and what do I mean by that? I think the way the system's set up is that people have this presumption that you know you go in whatever the doctor says you do and sometimes it's okay to ask questions it's okay to maybe not agree with certain things because you don't have answers to the those questions or you have concerns and you have questions that aren't answered and i think a lot of time people are scared to ask questions to answers that they don't know and then they lose faith and they stress and then they disagree at some point or family members aren't on board, right? Because as you said, you know, your wife, Patty was in this 120%. She was with you the whole time. So if Patty doesn't agree with what the doctor says, that doesn't help you, right? Or, or someone else in that family unit. And so, you know, hearing that is just so powerful because I just wrote that down. Don't fight the cancer. Let the doctors fight the cancer. Yeah. And that, that's Amit's, that's what Amit says. And so I, I would like to take that quote, but uh, yeah, Dr. Said, you can look him up. He has a, a website called stressfree.org and he is really powerful. Um, it's all very um, evidence-based neuroscience. And um, he teaches uh, what's called stress management resiliency training. And it's required for onboarding anybody who goes on staff at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Uh, med student, nurse, doctor has to do his, uh, what he calls the SMART course, uh, stress management resiliency training. But I, my understanding now is he's not employed by Mayo, but he's traveling the country. And you can find him on LinkedIn for sure. Um, but he's, he has tremendous insights. But I've spoken to him many times throughout this process. Uh, and he always makes himself accessible. It's awesome. Uh, I, I love sharing stuff like this because uh, as we know, you know, inflammation of the body causes all sorts of issues and stress is an inflammation, right? And and when people stress, they don't get any better. And it, it, that's just so powerful uh, what we just talked about. So I, I really appreciate you opening it up and, and sharing that with our audience. Yeah, I, I found that really helpful. And one of the things he encouraged me to do, I, I wrote a personal resiliency statement 
that um, I have framed on my wall just to, you know, I mean, I, I'm not naive to think that, you know, there's no, I, I, you get nervous every time you get a CT scan. Scanxiety, I think they call it. Uh, I, yeah, exactly. You go in there. First off, they make the, when they inject the contrast, it makes me nauseated. Mm. So I, I vomit about half the time. And so I always tell the, the tech, okay, give me this as slowly as you can. Yeah. And then be ready, get your picture <laughs> so I can jump out and vomit. And oh. um, about half, about 50% of my CAT scans, I've, I've vomited. Oh uh, the other half I've uh, nearly vomited. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's something that I get anxiety about just for getting through it. And then you worry about, I immediately run over to the radiologist and go, okay, what do you see? What do you and see? Go, yeah. I go, it's clean. I go, okay. I get, you know, a reprieve for another six months. I, so uh, what, what's your mantra that you, you have on your wall, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, well, um, it, it, I, well, it's, it's a, how about I, I'll send it to you. Um, it's, I, I guess I could read it. Um, it's a little bit, it's not short. Um, it's, it's fairly short, but it's not terribly long, but let me just grab it here and I'll read it to you. So Amit is about, um, finding meaning in life. He, he says, how do we stay resilient? Uh, you do it through, um, everything you've heard, gratitude, compassion, acceptance, forgiveness, and finding meaning. And so you try to interpret the world through those lenses and it allows you to reframe when bad things happen to you because you go, uh, you know, what is the upside or where's the silver lining of this? And I guess I'll read this first. And then I'll tell you what I found as a silver lining in my cancer. Um, so my, my personal resilience statement, I would recommend that everyone spend a little time deciding what your resilience statement is. But I, mine goes like this. I look for higher meaning. I try to stay relevant in the lives of my family, my friends, and my patients. I spread compassion and kindness by participating in humanitarian efforts. I continue to pursue self-improvement in my personal and professional life, and I stay confident that my best efforts will ultimately lead to success. I constantly seek out new experiences and challenges. I connect with the human condition through empathy. I commit to hope and optimism no matter how dark things seem, because that is the only way forward. I am tenacious and persevering and try to inspire others to be the same. I was raised with grit and toughness and a never quit attitude. I am naturally resilient and happy. I try to live in the present. I cultivate friendships and I cherish those close to me. Deep down, I believe we all have a purpose. I love the complexities of life in the natural world. I am grateful for my own life and at peace, however it unfolds. So that's that. Those are some pretty profound words there, David. Oh, thanks. How long did it take you to, to write that? It didn't take long, actually. I, I had a lot of time to think about it, but I wrote it. I wordsmithed it a few times, but then it was like, this is it. It's awesome. But, uh, I occasionally ask people to write their 
personal resiliency statements because you know it allows you to articulate what you already know. Mm-hmm. It's not like these were things that I didn't know about myself, but I was able to encapsulate them in words. And it goes, yeah, this is what I am. This is how I get through this. But I was going to say, so you look for meaning. And I, and when I first got diagnosed, you know, I'm private, generally a private person. And I really would have preferred to go into a cave and got all my treatment and come out when it was over and not told everybody. But being, um, you know, I'm the chair chairman of my department of anesthesia at my hospital and I'm pretty well, everyone knows who I am. And so even before I woke up from my biopsy on that Thursday, people were already texting me, my wife, the gastroenterologist, there was no keeping it private. And in my community, it's a small town and everyone knew because they all knew I was supposed to go off to Pakistan and now I wasn't. So eventually it, it, you know, I finally said to my wife, okay, you can tell people I, I'm, I can't keep it private anyway. And so that was really a big step for me. And what suddenly happened was all these patients who had survived cancer or were going through cancer, whether it was breast cancer or pancreatic cancer or some kind of cancer, started coming to me and talking to me about their own stories or asking me for advice. And it just became this incredible community and powerful connection, which is what you've created with Project Purple. Um, And so I commend you. And so this wasn't my natural um, tendency to connect that way. And But when I finally let go of that desire to be private about it, it was uh, very fulfilling and I really, suddenly felt much more connected to people in a very human way. And as I have spoken to a a whole variety of roomfuls of people about my story, I've always said, well, I'm the one up here with the microphone, but I know I could pass this microphone around and you could all tell me your stories of pain and suffering and cancer and disease or illness or somebody you know. And I speak from a, with a collective voice. Um, and so my silver lining of all this is that I feel more connected. It's been a really fulfilling three years to have connected so many people on such profoundly deep level that I never otherwise would have had just superficial conversations with. It's pretty special. I talk about your family here for a second. I mentioned as we opened the show, uh, you know, we found you because you and your your son and daughter graduated together. Um, I know you mentioned your wife, Patty, you know, being with you this, this whole time, uh, going through this fight. First question is, what was that like graduating with your two kids? That had to be pretty mm-hmm. special. And also given that this was after you had gone through the majority of your surgery, I assume. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh- we entered this uh, last July, so I was already done with all my treatment. Um, so I'll, I'll just tell it briefly. Um, because I, ever since I got diagnosed, I've only been working part-time 
Mm-hmm. So I, I work basically three days a week and I don't work weekends or take call anymore. And, and that's in contrast to working, you know, 65 to 70 hours a week for 28 years or whatever. Um, you earn maybe that. That's, you earn maybe that, that privilege. My yeah. <laughs> um, but my daughter graduated from University of Washington and her plan was to go down to Duke where I trained and do research with my friends. She wants to go to medical school. And she was going to do research at Duke. And she, and in addition to that, she was going to enter this master's program at Duke Med School, which is called a Master of Management in Clinical Informatics. And it's basically everything behind the delivery of healthcare, the business and the um, data science behind healthcare. It's a very unique program. There's only one other one like it. It's at Stanford. And it's started by the same guy that started at Duke. He left and went to, now he's on staff at Stanford. Um, it's a really incredible program. She was all set to go down to Durham and moved down there. And we went down there. And as it turned out, COVID prevented her from doing research in my friend's lab because they weren't allowing students in the lab. And so she was uh, already, though, enrolled in this master's program. And we met with the program director, Randy, and he said, well, uh, he said, we still have spaces and uh, spaces open for this program if you want to join. And I said, well, this is really a fascinating curriculum. And since I'm only working part time, I probably have time to do it. And I thought, well, when would I get a chance to do something like this with my daughter? Um, and so I said, well, what the heck, I'll enroll. Um, and then my son had just been furloughed from his job with Spartan Races. Oh, yeah. And he was... Um, he was actually driving across the country to visit a friend in upstate New York. And, um, and we called him and said, um, Hey, do you, what do you think about doing a master's program with your sister? He goes, <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting. And I go, and, and I would be in it too. And he goes, well, what the heck I'll do it. So we all three enrolled. It was really uh, just a, something we decided on the fly to do together. And so last First of August last year, uh, we started. It was much busier than I thought. It's an incredible program. So if anybody listening to this is interested in uh, informatics, the business of, of healthcare, uh, and you have any in- inclination to you know pursue a master's program, I'd highly recommend it. Um, it's called MMCI, Institute of Duke uh, School of Medicine. So. I was the oldest in the group. I, I'm 63 years old. And um, my daughter would have been the youngest, except that there was one girl, one woman in it who had just graduated from Duke. She was a month younger than my daughter. So oh, wow. we bookended the, uh, the program. Most of the people were within um, uh, probably in their 30s, their 40s, looking to make a career change. Uh, it was uh, it was a great experience. I. It, uh, as I said, I think in the interview you might have seen, there was a lot, a lot of reverse mentoring because I haven't used a lot of the technology. First, it was it was supposed to be one week a month, one weekend a month in Durham, and because because of COVID, it was all remote, uh, and except for the very last weekend in July. So we went in in July for two days uh, and had class in person, which was really fun. And then we had an in person graduation. Uh, in Ra- we actually had the graduation at the Raleigh uh, Art Museum in the Art Museum. Wow! Uh, and that was outside in August, so that was great. 
Um, it, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the Rodney Dangerfield uh, movie Back to School, but oh, yeah. for me, it was kind of like that. I was the <laughs> oldest person and I, I, I did feel, um, you know, somewhat old in the class, but it, it was very accepting. Uh, it was a really powerful experience. We all got very close to each other, even on Zoom. Unfortunately, we lost one student during the year. She she was actually murdered uh, oh. during the year in Durham, um, which is really, really sad. So we uh, and then there were a lot of uh, students who lost their parents throughout the uh, during the year. So we came up with the um, hashtag MMCI strong. Uh, it was a very uh, supportive group. Everybody reached out to each other and support each other through a lot of tough times. I mean, it was a hard year anyway with COVID. Yeah. And one, one, one of the gentlemen who was an IT person, he had to step away from the program because he was working for Pfizer and they were just kicking up, getting the vaccine out. So he got too busy. So he's hoping to finish uh, next year. And wow. so, you know, it was real life stuff, but every, virtually every subject we covered in the program would be on the front page of the papers the next day from the, um, Solar winds hack to supply chain problems to vaccine hesitancy. Great program. Wow, awesome. What what was it like graduating with your two kids there? You ever envisioned that? I mean, <laughs> it was really unique. Um, we're the first family team to ever do that. Uh, they've never had they've had husband wife uh, team in the program. They've never had a dad and a son or a dad and a daughter. Um, I don't know if any program at Duke uh, has had that. So it was really unique. They, I was glad we got a little recognition for it just because it was so unique. Um, but we, we were doing it just for our own sake, of course. Uh, but it, I will, what I, you know, as my daughter's written her essays for med school, they go, well, how did COVID disrupt your life? And how do you look at COVID uh, the year of the pandemic or the year and a half? And, what she's written is, I. it's been a tragic year, been a very difficult year for so many people. But for me, I'll always look back as one of the most incredible years. I, I did a program with my dad and my brother, and we graduated from uh, this master's program together. And we you know, were in, sat in class together. So for me, it was a, a great year, even though it's been a, a worldwide tragedy. Well, find the silver linings in it, you know, and, and that's the one thing, as we were saying before, you know, we hit record is, you know, there, you know, with this disease, unfortunately, you know, as, as tragic as COVID has been, um, you know, we have to still continue to push and, and find silver linings and find inspiration and find hope They're they're out there. Um, I think the media doesn't like to talk about them sometimes, uh, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. I got a couple questions here. Uh, really two questions here for you, Dave. And then uh, we're going to share where our audience can connect with you. Okay. So I, I know before we hit record, I said, I've done this, you know, I, I think this is like 180 interviews uh, on my resume here on this podcast. And I say this often, you know, they're, they're, I, I'm sitting in this seat. I'm getting to hear you talk about your journey, your life, your experiences. I take these notes and something just hit me. You know, you said that uh, you're an experienced climber, but you're not a great summiter. But you you can climb. You get you you, you grind. And, and for those, I mean, I, I I've been out to Colorado. 
it's in Colorado Springs and there's those stairs that those Olympic athletes, I forget the name. I just saw someone posted on social media, like these, they, they climb those stairs. Like, I forget what it's, it's like the, um, yeah, it's called the incline. Yes. Well, the, yeah. The incline yeah. in Colorado Springs. It's the cog. Yeah. Yeah. The cog, right. They, the, the mm-hmm. train. Right. And I remember People like, I, yeah, I was like, out. I was like dying and I, I've run 10 marathons, you know? So I, I, right. I selfishly think I'm in good shape, but I'm not you know, go out to Colorado, that'll humble you really quick. So you're able to do, you know, these climbs, you get out there, you know, 14,000 is not that big of a deal. You've done some, some amazing climbs, you know, a lot higher than that. So you, you know what it means to grind, right. And to get through the, the, those challenges of being in that, that position. And naturally for those, I've never climbed that high, but I've, I've seen plenty of documentaries where, you know, you get to a certain elevation level, oxygen becomes an issue training and also the weather, um, you know, and that can be changed really quick at a very high altitude. Have you ever had an opportunity to think about, and, and where I'm going with this is, you know, you've experienced that part. Do you think that prepared you for the fight with pancreatic cancer? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? And you're smiling because we're on well, Zoom. Yeah, because I, I, I do. Um, because I think that everything you do basically prepares you for that next challenge. And I guess, um, I, I am a grinder. Um, I persevere. Uh, I know that I, I I have you know literally vomited on the day the morning I got up to go for the summit, and then pushed myself to the summit and made it back down. And so, while I'm not a gifted high altitude climber, I push through, um, and I do think that got me out of bed as well as my dog. <laughs> um, and I would recommend anybody going through chemo, have a dog or somebody they have to take care of or something, you know, to, to push you out of bed. But yeah, having that fortitude and knowing that you can get up and, and still perform and, and keep going is important as you go through a big challenge like this. And the reason I smiled is because I, every Wednesday I do a, I do uh, spine injections. I work, I work in a pain clinic and I see patients who in Colorado, you know, get all these athletes and they go, Oh, I'm a cyclist. I'm a yoga instructor. I, I climb, I ski. This is what I do. I can't be held up by this. And what I say to them, you know, is your training is preparing you for this challenge. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on what you can do and not worry about what you can't do. And so that's the attitude I think you have to take. It's powerful stuff. My last question here for you, and this is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. With your experience and your journey that you've gone through, what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? And there's no right or wrong to this. It's your definition. (laughs) Well, I mean, from a clinical standpoint, this is a life-threatening illness that will always hover over me. And so from a doctor's lens, 
this is a fault in the system, a mutation that has tried, may still be trying to kill me. Um, and it has dramatically changed my life. Um, and it's brought in a lot of struggle to my life. From a more um, spiritual sense, it's been a, um, a real meaningful challenge to realize that I could meet the challenge, um, realize how strong my family is together and that I could um, continue to persevere um, in the face of a, of a life-threatening illness and continue to look forward. Um, uh, that's part of the reason I went into the MMCI program was to be forward, look, forward thinking. You can curl up in a ball. You can say, well, I'm going to die or I'm a patient and I'm not, you know, my productivity, my productive days are over. Or you can say, I can still learn. I still have uh, hopes and dreams. And, you know, I wanted to do something with my son and daughter, but I also for myself, I didn't feel like I had to prove anything to myself other than that I could still be optimistic and look forward and continue to think about a future. It's powerful stuff. One question that just came up that I forgot to ask. I know you said, you know, prior to, you know, you guys had this 100-mile trek into Pakistan. You get diagnosed, you put that on hold, naturally COVID has come. Are there plans in the future? I'm sure the audience at home is probably thinking, you know, we started with this 100-mile trek. Is there plans in the future to get to Pakistan eventually? I mean, I know that part of the country is a little funny right now, so I don't know if that changed it a bit. I don't know if I, I don't know if we'll get, go back to Pakistan. Uh, I have spoken, one of my friends who was on that trip um, and, the, and the mountaineer who uh, really guided that trip. I, I saw this winter when we were ice climbing down in Uray that we talked about Pakistan. We've talked about another trek. Um, I'm sure that my son and daughter and I will take some trek together. I, I don't know that we're actually going to go into that area of Pakistan. It, it sounded like a pretty difficult trek. And I think we might take something that's uh, a little more uh, tourist friendly, but it, it'll still be rugged. I, I'm, that's something I'm still trying to debate. So I'd like to do something really meaningful uh, physically. And so I do plan to do a trek. We don't have anything on the books quite yet. I think the MMCI year was a big enough trek right now. We're letting the dust settle. We've just been done with that for a few weeks. Uh, so I think by the end of this summer, my daughter and I and son will take a, at least a backpacking trip to make up for the trek we missed out on. I, that's awesome. I love hearing that. Last thing here, David, I know, uh, as we said before we hit record, uh, you know, if there's someone listening to, to this podcast and you know, inspired to learn more and hear maybe about the team and that there at Colorado and your experience, where's the best place for people to connect with you? I think that you, you can connect with me through LinkedIn if you want. Um, but I, what I would say is just 
email me. Uh, I'm happy to help anyone navigate through this if you're dealing with pancreatic cancer or, or any serious illness or something that you need um, some guidance on. Or if you just want to talk and relate, uh, I, I don't pretend to have answers to everybody, but my email is dtile, T-H-E-I-L, 1958 at gmail.com. Awesome. David, it's been a pleasure and my honor to have you on the Project Purple podcast. Um, you know, there's so many golden nuggets here and, and something that just is sticking, you know, the, the mantra, and I wrote it down here, you know, what you said, I know it's not what you said, but, you know, having that mindset of not fighting the cancer and let the doctors fight the cancer is just so powerful and how you've lived your life and just grind through this. But having that mindset, you know, is something that, you know, is just stuck here with me. And so thank you for allowing me to share your journey. You know, I, I admire what you're doing with Project Purple. It's really tremendous. I know it came from a, a difficult time in your life and it just shows your passion for it that you persevered and, and made it into such an incredible organization so i really admire anyone who's trying to make a dent in this disease so thank you very much for including me in your podcast thank you david you're welcome as we say here that's a wrap of another episode of the project purple podcast if you like what you hear today feel free to share this episode Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm-hmm.